Welcome to the podcast of Grace Community Bible Church. We hope and pray that you are blessed, challenged, and inspired by this message. For other sermons or more information, visit us at gracebiblechurch.org.au. Well, we've all been there, haven't we? Something we desperately wanted and desired and prayed for has not come about. A devastating piece of news, a major discouragement, a severe disappointment. Our hopes have been dashed against the rocks of circumstance or sin or death. A job loss, a failed marriage, the untimely death of a loved one, financial hardship, financial failure, even ruin. The cancer has come back again, and this time it's so much worse than before. Hopes pinned to what had seemed once so sure, so solid, has now crumbled to dust. What we need in those moments, like so many other moments of our lives, is to see that this disappointment, this piece of shattering news, was but a part, a small part, of an infinitely greater plan and purpose. And what we need to do is to see that the loss, the grief, the hurt is actually paving the way for us to see and to know and to love and to serve the Lord our God in a far better way than before. And I believe this is exactly what was going through Isaiah's mind as he comes that moment into the temple, perhaps to meditate before the Lord. Uzziah, one of the great kings, has died humiliated and alone, a leper. What a sad disappointing end to such a great start. Isaiah 6 verse 1 says, In the year that King Uzziah died, Uzziah's death gives us, firstly, a sad context to Isaiah's vision and commission to serve the Lord. In 2 Chronicles chapter 26, we have Uzziah's story all laid out for us. In verse 4, we see that what he did was right in the eyes of the Lord in his beginning of his reign. In verse 5, he's continued to seek the Lord and was instructed in the fear of the Lord. And in verse 7, he defeated his enemies, the Philistines and the Meonites and others, with God's help. And in verse 15, he was marvelously helped, the Bible says, until he became strong. And in verse 16, he grew proud. He was unfaithful to the Lord. He dared to go into the temple to attempt to burn incense on the altar. And in verse 17, the priests come rushing in after him because what he is doing is a sinful thing. It's forbidden for him to do that. And the priests grab him and they want to bring him out and he turns around to face them. And the Bible says he became enraged. In that moment of rage and pride and self-righteousness, leprosy broke out all over his forehead. And the picture is it was shame, a shame for all to see. And the priests see him and they seize onto him, the Bible says, even though he was a leper, and they rush him out of the temple. And Uzziah himself, realizing what's happened, rushes out with them. He hurries to get out. Leprosy in the temple, uncleanness in the place that demanded holiness and purity. Isolated and alone for the rest of his days, Uzziah was required to shout, unclean, unclean, everywhere he went if he walked out into public. So people would pull back and draw away from him. And finally, in verse 23 of Second Chronicles 26, he's buried 
with a very sad epitaph listed over him. He is a leper. So what's the point? The context of Isaiah's vision of the exalted Lord is the death of a man, even a king, who in pride had determined to do what God had forbidden to him. He was struck by God and left as an unclean, repulsive leper. And brothers and sisters, from his story, as we start to walk into the temple with Isaiah, let us all beware the sin of pride. How easily it creeps in and takes root. Eh? Beware the sin of pride. It was pride that led Lucifer to exalt himself against God in Ezekiel 28. It was pride that led you to Uzziah's downfall in 2 Chronicles 26. It was pride that led to Hezekiah's downfall. It was pride of the Pharisee who thanked God that he was not as other men in Luke 18. Beware, brothers and sisters, of the pride that will move us to act in defiance of God. God has a way of bringing humbling in. I know in my own life, I look back over even over the last 10, 11 years, and God had to humble me in a lot of different ways. God is able to humble that pride. Beware of it. So Isaiah comes into the temple in the context of Uzziah's death, and there he is confronted with the vision of the glory of the Lord. And here Uzziah, Isaiah sorry, himself discovers his own death sentence. And here also... In the presence of God, his sin is atoned for, and he finds forgiveness with God as well. Brothers and sisters in Christ, listen. God was still on the throne when Uzziah died, and when Isaiah went into the temple. And God is still on his throne today. When everything goes pear-shaped in our lives, and it does at times, God is still on the throne. And the doctor brings the bad news, or when the finances fail, when friends and family and people around us disappoint us or we disappoint them, when we become discouraged and disheartened or fearful, or when we sin and fail to love the Lord our God, He is still on the throne. This morning, whatever you're going through, it's, it's been interesting seeing familiar faces and, and recognizing some, and, and if I got your name wrong, I'm really sorry. I, I have a bad memory getting older. But I don't know what you've been through in the last 10 years. I don't know the journey God has put you on and has taken you on. I don't know what you're going through right now, but I can tell you with an absolute certainty that God is still on the throne. Amen. He's still on the throne. What we all need to do this morning, I believe, is to see the glory of the Lord, to push away all the distractions and all the cares that so easily pile up against us and we begin to walk with a bit more of a stoop as we carry those loads around with us. And what we need to do this morning is to push it all aside and get our eyes firmly on the King of kings and the Lord of lords and to see Him in the glory of His temple. We all need to see the glory of God through the lens of Scripture because God is most passionate for His glory. Everything God does has His glory as its ultimate purpose. The Bible tells us that He does all things according to the counsel of His will, to the praise of the glory of His name. The Bible tells us He created us, you and me, were created by God with a purpose, His glory. 
He sent Christ the Savior into the world to glorify His name. He says in John 17 and verse 4, the Bible tells us that He predestined, adopted, and saved us for His glory. My dear friends, we need to see God's glory because God is most passionate for it and because seeing His glory transforms and changes us. Anybody here been to the Grand Canyon? Yeah, I see a few nods, a few waves. I've never been. I, I spent 30 years in that part of the world, but never went there. I've been to some cool places in Australia, though, since we came back. You go to the Grand Canyon, and you walk up to that spot, and you just sort of look over the edge, and that great yawning chasm out in front of you. And something just takes your breath away as you see that amazing sight, and what you see transforms and changes you in that moment. And this morning as we come, as we open the Scriptures together to get a a glimpse of you, a precious perspective on the glory of God, it changes us. If you look long at the glory of God, you will not be the same. And we'll see how. The Bible says in 2 Corinthians 3.18, And we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. But you say, how is it we can see it? I mean, we can all get on a plane, fly over to America and get off and go to Grand Canyon, and we can stand there and look over the edge and see the Grand Canyon. But how do we see God's glory? Well, the answer is in a text, in black text on white page. In 1 Samuel 3, verse 21, the Bible says, The Lord revealed Himself to Samuel at Shiloh by the Word of the Lord. In other words, through the Word of God, through the spoken Word of God, and through our written texts that we have, the Spirit of God opens the eyes of our hearts to see, to comprehend the glory of God through the text of a Word. But we must be looking and contemplating and meditating on it. Notice, secondly, a glorious vision of the living God in verses 1 to 3. But the Bible says in John 1, verse 18, is perfectly true that no one can ever see God, for God is spirit. Yet sometimes God clothes, clothes himself in visibility for the good of his people. And in this case, the veil of heaven was pulled aside, and Isaiah in the temple there looked up and he got to see the glory of the living God. He writes in Isaiah 6 again In the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne. Notice the Lord our God is an enthroned king. He never ascended up to it. He will never descend down from it. Who here watched the coronation of King Charles? Yeah, in, in my house, like there was popcorn and, and everything, and we all sat around, and, and my sons and I laughed at my wife as she's a royalist and we're not. And, and we had a good time watching the coronation. And that was probably the most glorious moment in King Charles' entire life. He's waited, what, 70 plus years to finally get to sit on the old wood chair and put the crown on his head and hold the scepters and all that. And that was the most amazing scene in his life. 70 years he waited to ascend to the throne. And in probably 20 years, if not less, he will descend into a coffin and be put into a crypt beside his parents. And, and William will reign, and for a time, and then he will be put aside, and then someone else, and on and on. But listen, the Lord our God, He never ascended to His throne, and He will never descend from it. 
There's no beginning, no ending to his reign. He's unimpeachable and unassailable. You cannot fire him and he's not going to resign. His kingdom is an eternal kingdom and his reign is an eternal reign. Brothers and sisters in Christ, look and see. Look and see the glory of our God. It will change your life. It will change what you're going through and what you're dealing with. He is the ultimate authority. There's no higher court or council of appeal. Beloved, look and see. Notice also in verse 1, the Bible says the Lord was high and lifted up. The words there refer not to the throne itself, but to the Lord Himself. Isaiah saw the throne high, lofty, and the meaning, as one writer put it, is the very nature of God seated on that throne is exalted. So what's the nature of God? Do kids ever ask you what God is like? It's one of those awkward questions because we know so much and yet we know so little, right? And the heart of man trying to express something of the nature of God. So I'll give it a go, but it's, it's always going to be a failure because no matter how much and how beautifully we can express it, no matter how poetical the words come, it just fails, God's very existence is entirely in and of Himself. He's exalted. God is infinite in being and perfection. His essence cannot be comprehended by anyone but Himself. God is most pure spirit. He is invisible without body, parts, or passions. How many of us envision God as a little kid like a, a great, long, white-bearded grandfather? I did, because I had a big, tall, great-grandpa. He was a big, big man. I thought, God must be like that. No. No, God's nothing like that. We can't describe Him. And that's the job of a preacher, right? To describe the indescribable and try and comprehend the incomprehensible. That's what God is. He's immortal, dwelling in unapproachable light. He's unchangeable. He's immense. He's eternal. He's incomprehensible and almighty. God is most holy, most wise, and most free. Somebody asked John Piper one time, if you could summarize or just try and describe God in one single word, what would it be? And Piper said, free. And I thought, that's pretty cool. Our God is absolutely free from all the constraints and things that bind and hinder us. He is God, lofty and exalted. He is most loving and gracious and merciful and patient, abounding in goodness and truth. God alone can forgive iniquity, transgression, and sin. And that is great news because He forgives ours. Amen? But hating all sin, God will by no means clear the guilty. This is the living God whom Isaiah saw and was confronted with, the God with whom we all must deal. If you're here this morning and you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior, I've got news for you. You must deal with God. And the Bible makes it absolutely clear you will deal with God sooner or later but you will. And I hope this morning, if you don't know Christ as your Savior, you'll deal with Him this morning before you go home. Notice also again in verse 1, Isaiah saw that the train of His robe filled the temple. He is a majestic Lord. 
inside the temple, everything is overlaid in gold, glorious and beautiful. And no doubt as the light from that blazing candlestick on one side would have caused that gold surface to flash and sparkle. But the skirts of the Lord's robe were cascading down to cover everything with a majesty infinitely greater than the glittering gold. It's a scene of awe-inspiring majesty and splendor. Isaiah had come into the very place of Uzziah's fall after his death as a pathetic leper. And here in stark contrast, Isaiah sees the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, majesty glorified and exalted. Brothers and sisters in Christ, I plead with you. Whatever you're going through this day, maybe you're going through a great time. Maybe things are going really well. It happens too, you know. Sometimes we get so stuck up in the bad things, we forget that sometimes things go great. At the very same time, look up and see. Look and see the glory of the living God and be changed by what you see. Notice in verse 3, Isaiah saw and heard of the holiness of the Lord. The seraphim were crying out to each other, holy, holy, holy. In biblical Hebrew language and culture, the words and statements are repeated for emphasis. So if you go back to the stories of the Old Testament, you'll see often Abraham, Abraham, Samuel, Samuel. It's God speaking. He speaks it twice for emphasis. But notice here, he says it three times. This is the ultimate emphasis that the seraphim want to make known to Isaiah as he stands there and gazes up, that God is ultimately holy. His holiness is his undefiled, unmarked, unblemished, absolute purity. The holiness of God is the beauty of His face. And just as God's all-powerfulness is the strength of His arm, and just as God's all-knowingness is the wisdom of His mind, so also God's holiness is the beauty of the glory of His face. God's holiness is the height and beauty of all the other attributes that God has. If God were not holy, His justice would be cruel. If God were not holy... His mercy would be mere pity. If God were not holy, His sovereignty would be almost tyranny. But beloved, God is holy. Absolutely holy. R.C. Sproul made this great observation. It just has to be repeated. The seraphim do not cry out, powerful, powerful, powerful. Some of you probably heard this. He doesn't cry out, love, love, love. Wouldn't that be great? Wouldn't that be true? It'd be absolutely true. Or they could have cried out, goodness, goodness, goodness. But no, they stand there and one on each side of the train of his robe cries out one to the other in a never-ending beautiful chorus of praise back and forth. They cannot allow this time to pass. They cannot allow the scene to fall silent. They must declare the glory of God, the holiness of God. But you know, the seraphim themselves are created angelic beings They have no sin. They're created in in perfection with a certain glory of their own. But even they cannot bring themselves to look on the glory of the holiness of God. They must cover their eyes with their wings and call out from beneath them, Holy, holy, holy. They couldn't even bring themselves to look upon God because God is so holy. The holiness of God is so compelling, they cannot remain silent. 
Notice also what Isaiah writes in verse 4. He says, The foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. It's not like the thresholds you have at your door as you walk across. In my house, we got this uh, wood one, and somebody thought pine would be a good idea for a threshold. And it's not very good, and it's kind of rotting, and it doesn't look so great. And I don't think, uh, you know, it would tremble if a leaf hit it, right? Now, these thresholds are massive stones, great big stones laid. They're so big, it would take you know, modern-day cranes to move them. They found ways to move them. And when the voice of the seraphim spoke out the holiness of God, those thresholds vibrated from the sound of that voice. No doubt Isaiah was filled with fear in that moment. You know, beloved, if I could, I could see just one thing happen here this morning for all of us. It would be for the Spirit of God to so grip all of our hearts with the infinite majesty and glory of God that we are all transformed and changed from sinners to saints, saved by grace to glorify God, from rebels and fools to sons and daughters of the living God. So, beloved, I plead with you, look and see. Behold and be transformed by the glory of the living God. Notice also in verse 3 and verse 5, the Bible says that Isaiah saw the Lord of hosts. That means that he is sovereign Lord over all the hosts and armies of creation. He's sovereign over all the angelic and demonic hosts. The angels in perfect submission and service. The demons in rebellion, although still under God's sovereign authority. The Lord is sovereign over all humanity and nations and governments, economics, politics, governments, cultures, businesses, families, individuals. We all fall under His sovereign authority. There's no higher authority than the Lord our God. Uzziah is dead and gone. One king rises and falls, another king rises and falls, but God is still enthroned and sovereign. We need to see and submit to the sovereign Lord. We have no need to fear submitting to governments for our God who put them in place is always in control. We have no need to fear our circumstances because God is always on His throne. We have no need to fear what the doctor may say, what the bank account may say, because God is always and still on His throne. This little thingy up here keeps wanting to climb off. I think it's used to Benoit's head. It's smaller than mine, I'll give you that. We need, beloved, to see the glory of Almighty, Most Holy God. It's the key to everything. It brings home like nothing else the reality of the ugliness and repulsiveness of our sinful condition and our desperate need of a Savior. It brings home to us as believers what our true and real priorities are. Brothers and sisters in Christ, sometimes we get so stuck in our own world and so busy with our own problems that we lose sight of God's glory and the mole hills of our struggles become mountains to us and we need to see again the glory of the Lord. We need to pull our heads up and out of the sand of our circumstances and be once again awestruck and amazed and speechless in wonder. That's worship. We need to push aside those distractions and gaze wide-eyed like a little child. I was visiting some friends. Um, you may remember them, Jess and Jess Ackerley and her husband. They have a little tiny baby. And uh, 
I was holding this little fella, and he's got the biggest eyes I've ever seen on a kid. Don't tell him I said that. And it was, it was just beautiful. And he was staring around. His little fingers were sort of reaching out, trying to grasp onto what he was seeing, wide-eyed in wonder at what he was seeing. That needs to be us. And one of the great problems we face is there's so much flash and bang and CGI and graphics and movies. You can go to movies and watch amazing things on a big, huge screen with great sound system. And we're kind of like, whoa, look at that. But it's just make-believe. What we need to do is open our Bibles and read the text of Scripture and see the glory of the Lord in that text and just be blown away by it. When was the last time you sat down with your Bible and read and were left speechless by what the words are on the page in front of you as the Spirit of God drove those words home into your heart and your mind and your soul? That's what we need in this day. So firstly, there was a sad context of a dead king. And secondly, there was a great vision of the living God. And I would love to spend hours more unpacking more of God's glory in this text. But for you who are not born again, not repenting of sin and believing the gospel, I pray that this vision of Isaiah's will bring you, as it did him, to conviction of sin. You see, God is good, ultimately, infinitely good, but we are not. That's our problem. Notice thirdly, the wretched lament of an unclean man. In verse 5, Isaiah finally speaks in response to what he is seeing. And he makes one statement with three explanations. His statement, woe is me. His first explanation, for I am lost or ruined. His second explanation, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. And his third explanation, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Let's unpack them one at a time. He says, woe is me. In the Hebrew, literally, it's oily, and it means I'm doomed. I'm doomed. It's a groan. It's a lament, a despair over his situation. Isaiah, seeing the glory of the Lord, knew he was doomed because of his sin. My friend, listening or watching, if you don't know and love and trust the Lord of hosts as your Savior, you are, like Isaiah, doomed. That's the testimony of Scripture. That's not my word. That's what the Bible says. And I agree with them. His woe is your woe. You say, how can that be? Why am I doomed? What's the problem here? Let's move on. In his first explanation, he says, for I am lost. In my NASB, it says, I'm ruined. And the word lost or ruined literally means it's unraveled, it's destroyed. And by ourselves... With our human weaknesses and limitations, something that is ruined cannot be restored. It cannot be put back together again. I'll give you an illustration, and I'll tell you ahead of time, this is just a story. Uh, consider a certain carpenter pastor who happens to lie, like to ride V-twin motorcycles. Might look like the guy standing here talking to you. And uh, decided one day to change the oil on my bike. And, you know, you don't want to do it outside where it's dirty. So you take it inside, the nice clean garage floor, and you get everything ready, and you undo the drain lug, and you put the bucket under there, and all the oil drains out, and you put all the new oil in, and everything's good. 
And the bucket of dirty oil was right up to the top. You know how the oil gets right to the top of a bucket? And as you start to move it, it's not like water. It's sort of, you know. And as I walked by, being a man of great delicacy, I kicked the thing, right? And the oil went everywhere on the, on the concrete floor. And I'm like, oh, no, my concrete floor. What am I going to do? I'm looking around, can't find anything, no towels, nothing. Run inside, looking around, run into our bedroom, and there's this white woolly thing on the, on the bedside. Oh, that'll do it. Grab that thing, run outside, and I'm back on, the, on my knees, and I'm mopping, and I'm ringing, and I'm mopping, and I'm ringing, you know. And I just about got up, got the last lick of oil up off the floor, and wrung it out, and this thing was now black, like black like my Bible. And just about then, the door opens, and the voice calls out from behind me, sweetheart, have you seen my new chenille sweater? It's white. White? No, no, I haven't seen a white one. I've seen a black one. It's just a story. It just illustrates the point. I could wash that little sweater of hers a million times in the best detergent and the hottest water, and it will never become clean. The black oil, the grit of that engine, the grit of the transmission has so impregnated that beautiful white chenille sweater that it's now absolutely ruined. And that's what Isaiah means when he says, woe is me, I'm ruined. Confronted with the living God and His absolute holiness and the glory of who He is, He knows there's nothing He can do to put back together what's gone so wrong in His own heart. And brother and sister in Christ, we were once ruined like that. My friend sitting here, if you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ, you are ruined like that. And no amount of washing, no amount of works, no amount of tithing, no amount of going to church, no amount of reading your Bible can ever put it back together again. It requires something so much greater. It's ruined. He says, I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. That's how we understand his ruin. Unclean? Does that sound familiar? What did Uzziah have to cry out everywhere he went off the day he set foot in the temple? Unclean, unclean. And no doubt as Isaiah stood there and he looked at the glory of the living God and he saw the holiness of God and he heard about the holiness of God and he realized his own situation and he realized, just like Uzziah, I'm unclean. That's the word he chose. I'm unclean. You say, how am I unclean? I mean, I'm not Isaiah. I don't have leprosy. You might not have the physical leprosy, but sin is what the Bible uses leprosy to describe. Jesus said in Luke 6.45, the evil person out of the evil treasure of his heart produces evil, for out of the abundance of the heart his mouth speaks. In Luke 11, verse 13, Jesus said about us, if you being evil. That's Jesus' words. Paul, quoting Psalm 5 and Psalm 14, said in Romans 3, None is righteous, no, not one. 
No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. And he closes up, there is no fear of God before their eyes. No one, none, none, no one, all, all, all. You heard it over and over again. Brothers and sisters, my friends, in our sin, we are absolutely ruined. Notice I used the mouth there. Out of their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their throat is an open grave. What's dead in here is coming up out of here. And Isaiah says, I'm an unclean man, unclean lips. I live amongst the people of unclean lips. We all, like Isaiah, are a people of unclean lips because our hearts are full of evil and our mouths speak what is in our hearts. Even if we only had one evil thought or said one evil word or did one evil thing, it would still render us unclean in the presence of God. We're all ruined because we all sinned. Uzziah, Isaiah, you, me, all of us. We've sinned in thoughts and words and deeds. Sin is our failure to obey God perfectly. It's our failure to glorify God in everything we do. That's what we were created for. It's our failure to love God with all our heart, all our soul. You say, I love God with all of it. If you say yes, you just became a liar, which means that you're now unclean, so you're right back where you started from. All of us, because we've all failed to love the Lord. Even at the best moment of a Christian's life, in this side of glory, he will not love God with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength. And Isaiah, face to face with God, recognized his own ruin He says in in the fourth explanation, My eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. As Isaiah is seeing the great and glorious vision of God, I don't think he was standing there looking up. I think he saw and immediately collapsed into a ball, rolled up in a ball, pulled his hands over his head, and trembled in fear. And out of his mouth came that, Oi, doomed. He was face to face with God, recognizing his own ruin. His words actually serve as his confession. You see, to confess something means to simply agree with what we're saying. I agree with God that he is holy and I'm a sinner. I agree with God that I have sinned against him and him alone, and so I'm ruined. God's just judgment is right. Beloved, he saw the glory of God. He realized his own sin and knew he was doomed because he was unclean. So I go back to what I've said a couple times already and repeat it. If you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior, you're doomed. That's a real happy message, isn't it? But you know, without that message, the other half of the message isn't anywhere near as sweet. If you're sitting here this morning and you're refusing to repent of sin and believe the gospel, you are doomed. But so glad. Praise God, the story doesn't end there. Praise God, God begins to act. 
Notice fourthly and lastly, there is abundant forgiveness with the gracious Lord. Notice what the Lord does. Soundlessly, wordlessly, he dispatches one of the seraphim who flies to the great bronze altar, which is just outside the temple. And on that altar, night and day, without ceasing, he bur- there burns the sacrifices to God. He takes a coal from the altar with the tongs and holding it in his hand, he flies back to Isaiah and he reaches down and that tongue touches Isaiah's lips and burns them. I, I can't imagine. I picked up a really hot coffee cup one day. I love coffee and I love hot coffee and I grabbed it and I took a quick swig and didn't realize it was coming out a little faster than I expected and it hit my mouth. And as it did, the, the, the cup was so hot, I actually heard a as it hit my lips, and so I knew I'd burn my lips. Nice blister there. Imagine a coal off a fire that hit his mouth. Every time Isaiah stood up to preach and open his mouth, that scar tissue would have made it probably a little tougher to talk. But he preached the rest of his life, his whole ministry, with that scar marking his lips. And every time he opened his mouth to declare the glories of God and the salvation of God, he would have realized it's been applied to me. And beloved, if you're in ministry, if you're in some kind of service, I assure you that God will mark you in a certain way and your ministry will be marked by something like that burn. God doesn't use men greatly until he's hurt them deeply. Someone said that, and I know from experience how true it is. He touches that with his lips, and he speaks. But before we look at his words to Isaiah, I want you to notice the greatness of what's just happened. This is God's grace. The problem with us in our Christianity is we're so used to the terminology. Even when we pray, we just roll off the words, you know, and lead God and direct. We just pound out the words. And we know they mean something, but sometimes that meaning gets lost because we become so familiar with them. This is grace, an incredible grace of God. Nothing will ever compel God to act in our behalf. He does so because He loves us and because He is a gracious and a merciful and a kind God. He wasn't compelled by Isaiah's previous ministry for the Lord for chapters 1 through 5. He wasn't compelled by what he knew Isaiah could do. He simply acted in grace towards Isaiah. And when God sent the Lord Jesus Christ to a cross to suffer and die and bleed for you and for me, he did it in grace, not for any other reason. I guess you could say to display the glory of his grace, so there would be two reasons. He did it in grace. If you think that God must save you because you're not so bad or because maybe you're not as bad as other people that you see around you, or maybe you think God should save you because, you know, I've been attending this church for years, all my life. I've never made mistakes, so God should save me. I've faithfully given my money to this church, so God should save me. I've helped out in all kinds of ministry, even the dreaded Sunday school. Man, I've been down there with them little kids, and some of them are brats. And I'm telling you, that could earn me salvation. That might come close, but no. No, God saved you because of His grace. God acted in that moment for Isaiah because of grace. You ask, what about the cross and death of Christ? How could that coal applied to Isaiah's lips, how could that atone for his sin? 
Because we know for absolute certainty that only the blood of Christ, only the death of Christ can atone for our sin. And the answer is that unceasing burning sacrifice out on the great bronze altar outside, it pointed to Christ who is to come. Every time they brought an animal and they laid their hands on the head of the animal and cut its throat and caught the blood and put the animal up onto the altar and set fire to it and it burned up with a blazing fire, it did not atone for one single sin. But what it did do is it preached a message to the heavens. Jesus is coming. One day He's going to come. And every single sacrifice declared to the living God and to the offerer, one day somebody will come and they will deal with sin fully and completely. And shortly after, the Lord Jesus suffered and died and rose again. The temple was destroyed, never to be used again. It all pointed to the Lord Jesus Christ. It pointed to the Son of God, the Lord of glory, who is coming As the great prophet, he came to represent God to us. As the great high priest, he came to represent us to God. As the great King of kings and Lord of lords, he came to reign forever and ever. His death will accomplish atonement. It soothed the anger of God against us. It took our sin away. He will die once for all, the just for the unjust. He will end forever the need for sacrifices for sin. All those sacrifices pointed to Christ and His death on a cross. That burning coal as He put it on Isaiah's lips and spoke those lips, those words that your sin is atoned for, your guilt is forgiven, it was all because of what Christ would do. The coal just pointed to it. And Isaiah was forgiven. God in magnificent grace accepted that reminder This has touched your lips, your iniquity is taken away, and your sin is forgiven. Isaiah had only one thing to do. All he had to do was receive the gracious work of God. Isaiah saw God's glory as the enthroned, exalted, sovereign, and holy, and majestic God. Isaiah realized in that moment he was ruined, broken, and ashamed over his sin. Isaiah received God's grace and God's atonement on his behalf, and Isaiah was forgiven. But what about you? What about you? My prayer for this message is, Lord, open our eyes. Lord, cause cause us all to see again a fresh view of your greatness and your glory. Cause us to grieve and be broken over our sin. Awaken us to faith, Lord, and to turn away from sin. Lord, bring us to receive forgiveness. Maybe you're sitting here this morning and you've been walking with the Lord for some time, but recently you've turned aside all the distractions of the world. All the riches and toys and trinkets of this world have led you to turn aside. I'm pleading you with, with you with all my heart. Turn around. Turn back and see the glory of the Lord. Turn back and see what God has done for you in Christ. Confess that sin. Make right what needs to be made right. And renew that walk of faith and repentance again. Maybe you're sitting here and you don't know Jesus. 
And all the way that we've been going through this message, you've been feeling something inside of you, longing to know God. I cry out to you, listen, turn and look and see the glory of God. Go back to the book of Isaiah 6 and read again. Go back to the Gospels and read again the story of the Lord Jesus. Like we sold earlier, go talk to one of the elders. Come talk to me, I'm happy to talk to you. Happy to point you the way. Cry out to God like Isaiah did. Woe is me for I'm ruined. And he heard the message. This has touched your lips. Your iniquity is taken away and your sin is forgiven. My prayer again this morning as we've gone through this is that you will be changed, be transformed by a vision of the glory of the living God. Would you stand with me? We're going to close in prayer. And I think there's another song that we'll sing. Our gracious God and heavenly Father, we give thanks again for your glory, for the majesty, for your holiness. Father, for the infinite worth of who you are. And Father, as we have taken a look at who you are and Isaiah's response in that moment, Father, we pray that those words would sink into each of our hearts and minds. That we would each know what it means to go from being ruined to being saved, reconciled, restored, put back together again. Father, I cry out to you for every single person in this room. Lord, for the little one at the back who just cried out, Father, we pray for her, his salvation. Father, we pray that you would open their little eyes while still young to see the glory of the Lord and know the ugliness of their sin and be saved. Father, for all of us standing here, Lord, for those who know the Lord, who love the Lord, Father, who are walking faithfully with the Lord, Father, I pray, I plead with you, O God, that seeing what we saw today would renew their zeal would renew their faith, would encourage them to keep going a little longer, a little further. Father, for those who are here this morning who have begun to believe, but have stepped back and are starting to turn aside, Father, I pray that you would arrest them with that vision of your glory and turn them back. And Father, for those who are standing here right now who do not know Christ as Savior, Father, I plead with you that you would open their eyes to see That as they read the text of Scripture, they would see the glory of the Lord and they would turn and be saved. Father, we ask you for all these things. We cry out to you, O God, for your help. We give thanks, Father, for this time in the Word and we pray for your blessing in the precious name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.